last year I was in India and I was talking with my friend who was a professor at the Mission India Theological Seminary in Nagpur. We were having tea together and we were talking about the differences between India and the U.S. and just about different cultures and things like that. And he stopped the mid-conversation and saying almost to himself, he said, do you know what the difference between India and the U.S.? And I was puzzled. I didn't know exactly what he meant by his question. And he said, the difference is, is that in the United States, you had at your foundation, the Bible is the word of God. He said, that shaped and influenced the direction of your country. He said, in India, we didn't have that. And as I thought about what he said, it was from his perspective. I mean, he, he, uh, he, he's taught and been in many different cities around the world. And as I thought about it, I thought, you know, he, he was right. And not that every founding father was Christian. That, many people have said that we are a quote-unquote Christian nation. Uh, some high-profile politicians in our past have said as much. But um, if you've ever read the biographies of many of our founding fathers, you quickly realize that not all of them were. Um, by any stretch of the imagination. But they all, though, were influenced by the Scriptures. Uh, they were directed in some way, shape, or uh, one, one way, shape, or form. They were directed and there were principles, Judeo-Christian principles, at the heart and the foundation of our nation. And as this, uh, small groups have gone on this past week, and we've been in this series entitled, titled Shattered, uh, we started talking in our small group, and I'm not sure if you had it in yours, but we talked about politics in ours. Uh, and we talked about what it meant to be a, a, a nation. And one of the verses that came up uh, in my mind is the scripture from Psalm 33, verse 12. And I, I'm, undoubtedly, I'm sure you've heard of it. I can quote it to you. You can look it up if you wish, but I'll just read it. It says, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people whom he has chosen is his heritage. And many people think, oh, you know, that's, that's uh, blessed is the nation. That's, the United States had uh, God as, 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 its, uh, as their king, as uh, their God. But the reality is, is that verse was actually spoken about the nation of Israel. And it was saying that they had God as their, their head, their king, their, their, the center of their being. They were in a theocracy. Now, that doesn't mean that a, a country can't follow God wholeheartedly. That's not what it's saying. Uh, but we have to remember that what it meant in context. And we have to understand what are we advocating when we say that we're a shattered nation. Are we calling our nation to go back to the Judeo-Christian principles? Are we, we t- attempting and saying that we're a Christian nation and we're advocating a theocracy? Uh, what are we advocating? And what is it the Bible tells us to be? Now, it's interesting. As, as Christians, I mean, we are, we are students of the entirety of Bible, the, the entirety of the Word of God, and we preach the entire counsel of God's Word. But a lot of what we are living in was, is within the New Testament because we know that much of the Old Testament uh, was pointing to the coming of Jesus Christ and was speaking to the nation of Israel who was living in a time known as a theocracy where God was the head. God appointed the leaders. God was their heartbeat. God was their director. God was their provider. And we're not in that era. We live in a, a democratic republic in our day and age. And how are we as Christians to function within this world? Now, it's interesting that the Scripture says not just about us as a nation of people, but it talks about us who are believers in Christ. When we place our faith in Jesus, we actually become a holy nation, a different nation. It's, it's, a, it's a different membership, a different citizenship. As a matter of fact, the Scripture says that our citizenship then is a heavenly one, that it transcends geographical boundaries. It's not about politics or even different forms of government. The New Testament doesn't talk about that. matter of fact, the New Testament talks about us to be submitting to the government uh, that we have in front of us. 
And so today when we're talking about the nation, we're going to look back at how Israel as a nation departed from God. But we're going to see how we as a nation, a body of believers, Christians, can depart and repeat many of the same mistakes that they made. Because we know that many of the things that happened to Israel in their past were lessons for us to learn about and learn from. So we wouldn't repeat the same mistakes that they made. And we see that we are this holy nation. We have to be careful because we, just like they did in in ancient times, we can become a shattered nation. We can forget God. We can put him to the periphery and forget about God's influence and his desire for us. And we have to make sure that we guard against that, to make sure that we are doing what God wants us to do, being this holy nation that God has. So today as we jump into this, I want to ask a few different questions that I'd like us to have in the back of our minds. How can we as people, how do we turn from God in our daily lives? Also, what does that look like in our everyday choices? What does it look like with our families? What about our careers? What will happen to us if we continue on turning our back on God? And most of all, how do we get back to God? So I want those questions to be in the back of our minds as we walk through this, this wonderful text to see what God has for us. But before we go any further, let's ask for God's blessing on our message time. Father, we come before you. We ask you to speak to us, open our minds to the truth of your word, that we might go forth changed and growing in our joy anew. We thank you and praise you for all you've done and all you're going to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I want to spend a brief moment, and and I'd ask you to keep your Bibles open. We're going to be turning a lot today. Uh, We have several passages that I want to bring to your attention um, as we're going to to delve into this subject. And I do want to talk a little bit about what it means to be a part of God's nation or God's kingdom. Now, um, what does it mean to be a part of God's kingdom? Now, God's kingdom is not a geographical one. It's not one that's achieved by force or coercion. It is one that is entered to by faith. It is a spiritual kingdom. Jesus said as much in John chapter 18. Uh, John chapter 18 and verse 36 through 37. You can turn there if you want to. And I'll just set the stage uh, briefly for you. And, and forgive me, I'm going to give some backgrounds on some understandings of kingdom and nation. And then we're going to delve into this text and kind of draw out some principles. But I want to set the stage, set some, lay some groundwork for uh, how we are going to enter into this passage in 1 Samuel. And in John chapter 18, Jesus is standing before Pilate. Remember that. He's before Pilate. And he is, uh, Jesus is considered a threat to the Roman government because he was, he was being hailed and looked upon as a king. And the Romans were, were scared that he was going to you know, initiate, a, in essence, a coup d'etat. It's going to be a rebel takeover for the occupying rebel, uh, rebel government. And so he is, uh, excuse me, the occupying government. He would lead a band of these Jews to take Israel back over. And, and so they're, they're scared of that. And now the Jews are scared of him because they, they think that he is going to cause much trouble and then the Romans are going to come at him and take away everything else, the little rights they do have. But Pilate is curious about who Jesus is, trying to understand his identity. And he says, he goes, are you a king then? And Jesus responds in John chapter 18, verse 36 through 37. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I may not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world 
to bear witness to the truth. Everyone is of the truth, listens to my voice. So he's advocating that he is a king of a spiritual kingdom. Not one, again, that's that's obtained by force. Not one that can be identified by geographical boundaries. But how do we enter into this kingdom? Well, I would would ask you to turn with me to John chapter 3. This is a very well-known passage. Of course, it contains John 3.16 in it. But we're looking at verse 3 through 21. And again, we're going to go through a few different texts here before we really enter into 1 Samuel. So I beg you to just kind of stay with me because I'm trying to build a case for what it means to be a kingdom and a nation of God's people. And then we're going to use that and apply kind of that principle and superimpose that back on 1 Samuel 8 to see what that and how that can apply to us. But in John chapter 3, uh, he, Jesus is meeting with Nicodemus. He is a religious teacher of Israel. And he's speaking to him. And Jesus answered him in verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, which is always Jesus' way of, of saying, pay very close attention to what I'm about to tell you. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So you want to be a part of the kingdom of God, you have to be born again. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? He's seeing it very literally. Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The blind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can, I, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, that light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his works, his should be exposed. But whoever does that, what is true comes to the light so that it might be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. See, when we place our faith and trust in Christ, the moment that you trusted in Jesus as your Lord and Savior of your life, you became a citizen of God's kingdom. Matter of fact, Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 through 21 says as much. Again, feel free to turn there. But he, Paul says this, But our citizenship is in heaven, not of the Roman kingdom, not of the United States, not of a different country. Yet It's not about what the passport is. Your passport is re- different now. It is issued by the kingdom of heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. So we, we also understand that we are citizens then of a heavenly kingdom. That we're not trying to take over politics, that we're not to issue morality and do things like that. I mean, we are. I mean, the purpose of government does have that effect on it, by the way. Biblically speaking, the government has three different purposes. It's, it is to promote the good. It is to help restrain or prevent evil. 
And it's to help punish wickedness. That's the purpose of government the way that God has made it. That's how God has ordained government to be. Now, we could talk about the different forms of government, but that's not what we're talking about because God is not calling us back to a theocracy. And in this passage in 1 Samuel chapter 8, it is focusing on the nation of Israel living within a theocracy and how, in essence, they were rejecting God as their king and they wanted to look like the nations around them. Now, how do we then apply that as Christians? I mean, we're, we're, we, we don't live in a theocracy. But we have to understand we can't reject God's lordship of our lives as citizens of this heavenly kingdom in which we are engaged in a part of. So we have to be very careful and very discerning of that and understand that how, we, how then do we live in the midst of our, our world? Well, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 through 17 says this. And not too many more passages I'm going to have you turn to. We're going to really dump, jump into 1 Samuel chapter 8. But this is the last long passage I'd like to read for you, or you can turn there with me. But Peter is talking, and he says, But you are a chosen race. These are the people that have trusted in Christ. A royal priesthood, a holy nation. That's where we get that concept from. We who are believers in Christ are a holy nation. A holy nation. But he says this, A people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. You have been, we've been kicked out. We're, we're not a part of our complete homeland yet. That's heaven. We're on the wrong side of the door, the outside looking in, but one day we will get in. He says, as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of your visitation. Be subject, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution. Okay, this is where to obey the authorities that are set above us. God has instituted government. We're to obey the authority set above us. It says as much right here. Then remember, this is Peter talking about the Roman government who were killing Christians. That's dramatic. It's a little crazy. But that's what he says. He says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Honor the emperor. The emperor who is not a believer, the emperor who is not a bastion of morality. These emperors were some of the most immoral people you've ever read about in history. I've read the 12 Caesars, which was going through their lives. And they were not individuals of... Uh, high moral authority. They would make our politicians look like choir boys. These were bad guys. And he's saying, honor even them. Honor the government that you're in. But understand that you are an ambassador. That's not really your, your authority. That is God. God is your greater authority. That might be your earthly authority. You honor him. You'd be a good citizen in the kingdom in which you find yourself, but you do so as an ambassador of Christ, as 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20 tells us. It's the last passage I'll have you turn to for a while, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, Paul says, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. 
We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. An ambassador who is one who is in a foreign land but represents his home country, his home government, his home president. We are representing Christ to the world in this foreign land in which we find ourselves. We are a holy nation. We, it's where our citizenship is in heaven. It is a different kingdom. It is a spiritual kingdom of which we are a part. So now that we have that in our minds, we have that formatted, that we're not looking for a theocracy. We're not an ancient Israel, but we are a holy nation. We need to understand how we can become a shattered nation of pe- the people of God by turning our backs upon God. So we're going to jump now into 1 Samuel, and I want us to, to really uh, draw and see what God is showing us here. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, when Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. Now, Samuel, we, we'd seen the birth of Samuel. We'd heard about Hannah and Hannah, how she prayed for Samuel, and Samuel becomes a judge. He is the last of Israel's judges, and he was trying to lead the nation, but he had a hard time leading his family. I mean, we've had people that are great spiritual leaders that their kids don't always end up that way. We don't know if he failed to teach them or if he taught them and they just rebelled. We don't know. We just know that he, uh, his sons, he appointed them as priests, and they really weren't qualified. Perhaps he was trying to set up the priesthood as it had been during the time of the Levites or the Aaronic priesthood where it would be perpetuated by the sons. Maybe he was trying to set that up, but these men were not qualified. They took bribes and perverted justice. They didn't walk in his ways. So we see that they're not great, great guys. And it bothered the people of Israel so much. So much so that the elders gathered together. They had a meeting without Samuel. That happens sometimes. He's having, they're having a meeting because they want to bring the issue to Samuel. So they call a meeting of the elders of Israel and they bring it to Samuel. And we see they come to Samuel in verse 5 and they say, behold, you're old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. But this thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. He sought God on this. He, and the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they also are doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. See, I want us to see what happened to them and how they became a shattered nation. See, the first thing that they did was they rejected God's ways. They rejected what God had set forth. They rejected what God had, had given unto them. And, and in some ways, we see deservedly so, because the men had become corrupt. But they, do, they go much further than that. They come up with an entirely new plan. They say, we're not going to do what God wants us to do. We don't want to do what we did before. Even though God had provided, guarded us, led us, it's pretty supernatural ways, so supernatural that the nations around us are aware of it and afraid of us because of it. But you know what? That was in our infancy stage. We were a little immature nation. Now we're entering into maturity. We want to look like the nations around us. So we're going to put God to the sideline. You know, that was our crutch, if you will. So they reject God's ways. They reject what God has for them. Now, how did they do that? Well, first of all, we reject God's ways when we disregard his provision. We fail to remember what God has done for us. How much has God done for you? I guarantee he's done a lot. You might not think he's done a whole lot, but you are some of the most blessed people in the entire world. 
The fact that you are here today, that you had the freedom to walk in this door, means that you've been blessed. The fact that you, had, you could choose when you woke up what clothes you put on or what you had for breakfast, you are blessed. The fact that you have an indoor toilet, <laughs> that now everybody's like, I'm blessed. I'm blessed. It's true. We are very blessed. We are very blessed. We don't have people holding M16 or, or M16s when we're going to vote. We don't have to worry about our child or son or our daughter here in the U.S. dying of starvation. We are a blessed people. And we forget how he has led us, how he has blessed us. The reason we forget is we're so busy comparing ourselves with those who have a little bit more than us. We're always comparing ourselves. And we forget what God had done. And they had forgot how God had led them. I mean, and it wasn't just little ways. God had led them in miraculous ways. I mean, think about it. They saw the plagues happen to the Egyptians and not themselves. They saw the the Nile turn to blood. They saw the lice come upon the people. They saw the locusts fill the land. They saw the cattle dying. They saw all of these different things. They saw the frogs coming out of the water and, and just infesting and covering the land. They had seen all this. They'd seen the sky turn to complete black over Egypt, but it was daylight in Goshen. They'd seen this. And they'd seen the death of the firstborn of all the Egyptian households for those who didn't have the lamb's blood covering over the doorway. They'd seen it. And then they plundered the Egyptians. God had caused them to to just be blessed in such a way that they could even plunder the very people that were imprisoning them and keeping them in captivity. And then, to top it all off, they walked across dry land. They'd stood at the edge of the the Red Sea. They see the Egyptian army coming. They call unto God. The Red Sea parts and they walk across on dry land. Now, I don't know about you, but if I saw that, I, don't, I, I, I would be pretty amazed. I mean, just walking, and I'm sure, I, and I don't know how you would, but I'd be a little bit nervous. You'd be staring at Nemo through the water. See what I'm saying? You see all these different things and hear the wind blowing and wondering what's going on and seeing how tall that just was around you, knowing that this isn't normal. And then to make your way all the way across the entire nation and then to see it collapse on the Egyptian army. And drown them in the process. And, and then to see the nation of Israel being led by a cloud by day and by fire by night. To see every morning I wake up, oh, there's some manna. There's some manna for me. Or now that we have the quail that have come in, I have some meat. Every morning that's there. And these are miracles that they had seen, and yet they turned their back on God. They still had people that had come and seen all this stuff, and they said, you know what, we want to go back to Egypt. You know, that's how many of us are. We've experienced and, and tasted the blessings of God, and yet we want to go back to our sinful lives. We need to go back into the, be slaves to sin again. See, that's what we see with, with uh, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot's wife. Remember that story? That they're being freed from the midst of this, that judgment has been uh, brought or being brought on them. And what does God tell them? Don't look back. And she looks back, and it's a picture of wanting to go back to your old sinful life. And she turns around, and she becomes a pillar of salt. God's saying, don't go back to your old way of life. Don't forget what I have given to you. I have blessed you. I have given you so many things. And yet, look how comfortable you have become. Look how lazy you are. Where's your faith now? What are you doing for God now? Are you looking for a safe faith? Are you willing to continue to take risks for the kingdom of God? This world is not our home. The problem is, is we've delighted more in the gifts rather than the giver. We are so busy getting caught up in all of the things that we forgot the king of kings. 
We have to remember and not disregard his provision. But we go further. We also reject his ways when we devise our own plans. When we devise our own plans. See, what they did is they said, give us a king. Not only are we rejecting God's ways, we have a different idea. We want you to do this. We're, gonna, we're, we're, disreg- we're devising our own plan. We're coming up with something alternative. See, whenever we reject God's ways, we have to have something to replace it with. You know, in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 2, verse 13, you can turn with me if you want. I'm going to try to move a little bit quicker. But in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 2, verse 13, we read this. God indicts the people of Israel, and he says, My people have committed two evils. The first is this. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, that satisfies and alone satisfies. And they have hewn out or hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. If you, if you forsake me, you've got to create something else. You've got to create your own way to drink and find satisfaction. If you're not going to drink from me and you're not going to have satisfaction in me, you've got to create something for yourself. But you know what? It will never, ever satisfy. No matter how much you try, no matter how much you create it, no matter how much you put into it, it will never satisfy the deepest longings of your heart. That's the two evils. You reject, and then you have to create something else. And see, that's what they did. They devised their own plans. They came to him and said, we want a king. That's what we want to do. And we devise our own plans thinking that we know better than God. And I've seen this all the time, especially now. I see it in our culture where I see us going against what, what science has said, what research has said, what history has said. We're going to say, we're going to go against it. We're going to show. We're going to have our own way. You see with people now that are saying, all right, we're going to live together before we get married. That's what we're going to do. We're going to try this out. Our parents got married young. They got divorced. We don't want that to happen, so we're going to live together. We're going to try this out. We're going to take this little relationship for a test drive, if you will. Statistics have shown repeatedly, and I can cite them for you, again, again, and again, that doesn't happen. Those that are living together before they get married are more likely to divorce than anyone else because it's not built on commitment because that's not what God has made it to be. You're to leave, cleave, and that's it. And we have this way of thinking that our ways are better than God's ways, and we're smarter than God, and God doesn't understand what we're dealing with. God understands it better than any of us ever do, but yet we continue to devise our own ways, create our own definitions, and force God to fall in it, and our world gets into a big, giant mess. God's the one that has designed men and women. He has designed marriage. He has designed us. He knows us. He has given his word to direct us. Not to limit us, but to give us freedom and fullness of joy if we follow him. Now, it doesn't mean that we're not going to have pain. It doesn't mean that we're not going to have struggles and we're not going to suffer. But it means that our life will be characterized by peace and a dependence on him that will be shown in the joy that we experience by knowing we are being obedient to him. Devise our own plans. We also know that we have rejected God's ways when we demand that others participate in our plans. See, they come to him in verse 5. Behold, you're old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like the nations. Then skip ahead to verse 19 of 1 Samuel 8. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, it's emphatic, but there shall be a king over us. That we will also be like all the nations, and our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. See, when we demand other people do what we want, them to do rather than what God wants us to do, we know that we have rejected God's ways. And we do this as individuals, that we do and commit a sin or get ourselves into a situation that we know is bad. We convince ourselves it's right. So we talk to our friends and we get them to agree with us because we slant the truth in such a way 
that they want to identify with us and condone, even support what we're doing. So we, have to, we can't do that. That's when we know we've rejected God's ways, when we demand others participate in our plans. But that's not all. In verse 11, where God says to Samuel, okay, they want a king, obey their voice, but I want you to give them a warning. But see, they refuse God's warning. We know when we refuse God's warnings that we have become a shattered nation, when we refuse God's warnings. See, God warns them a few different things. He says to them, he will reign over you in verse 11. He will, this coming king that you want, he will take your sons. And then skip down to verse 13. He will take your daughters. In other words, when you refuse God's warning, let me tell you what's going to happen. You're going to hurt your family. You want, what, you want something that's apart from God. God's going to let you have it, but he's telling you the consequences that are going to come. You're going to hurt yourself and you're going to hurt your family. See, whenever we refuse or reject God's ways and we don't listen to his warnings, we hurt not just ourselves, but those around us. We hurt our families. I mean, think about it. Think about when an alcoholic continues on and continues on. Are they just hurting themselves? No, they're hurting their family. They might even be estranged from their family. But it's because of their addiction that they've caused everyone around to not want to be around them anymore. It doesn't just hurt you. It hurts the people around you. When you leave your spouse or when you start to have an affair, you are not just hurting you. You are hurting their family, your family. You are jeopardizing your future. You are, you are hurting yourself. I was talking to my brother, uh, Scott Hart, yesterday. We were having the men's breakfast, and he was telling me he was at a group with Frank, uh, was it Frank Abagnale? Ab- 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 how do you say his name? Abagnale. Ab- Ab- Abagnale Jr. And he's the guy, the character of uh, the movie uh, Catch Me If You Can is based on him with Leonardo DiCaprio. I don't know if you've seen that, but it's this guy who was between like 16 and 21. He was running from the law, pretending to be a, an airline pilot, uh, I mean, a government agent, I mean, all this stuff, and he's running from the law during all this time. So this guy is speaking to this conference of men who are like power players. I mean, these are, these are men of authority. These are men with a lot of money. Um, they're doing a lot of stuff, and he's supposed to be talking about identity theft, and what did he talk about? He talked about don't cheat on your wives to this group of men. That's what he says. Don't cheat on your wives. Don't leave them. Stay in your marriage. Because if his father had, and his parents had divorced and it had tore his, his life apart. And so he's supposed to be speaking about identity theft and he's, he's talking to these men about being faithful because he, the pain of that affected him. You might think, oh, my kids will get through it. How selfish are you? How selfish are you? You're so focused on your own stuff. No one said it was going to be easy. You see, it's an opportunity to lay down one's life, to be sacrificial, to suffer for the glory of God. See, we hurt our families when we refuse God's warnings. And not only that, but we're also hurting and harming our finances. Harming our finances. See, notice what he says there. They're going to take your, your cows. They're going to take your livestock. They're going to take a tenth of your grain. They're going to take your vineyards. They're going to take all of this stuff. That's what the king's going to do. You're, you're not going to make money. You're losing money. Your crops, your finances are going to be hurt. See, when you go against what God wants you to do, you're hurting your finances. This is where credit cards get us into trouble, folks. This is where we try to live like everybody else becomes a problem. Because we get ourselves into this cycle, and this cycle of debt. And now we're paying off this debt. Now we can't do certain ministries because we've disregarded what God had. 
we wouldn't put the principles in place, and we took it upon ourselves to go into this deep debt. I made a mistake about this. Even, even when I was trying to go into ministry, okay, I had finished seminary. I had managed to get out of seminary with some very small student loans. <clears throat> and then I decided that God wanted me to go on and be this scholar. And so I, I, I said I had some friends that took on some major debt. I went, well, I can do that. Some major loans that ended up just choking me. And even though I was going into ministry, I remember I was really doubtful, and I, I went to the seminary. It was at Trinity uh, uh, in, in Deerfield. And I, and I remember uh, receiving this check, and I was like, oh, this is God's blessing on my, my schooling. And my friend looked at me, and he goes, it might be God's blessing, or it might be God just keeping you from being an idiot because, you know, he, you've been an idiot. That's what he actually told me. You've been foolish, and God is just throwing you a, a life preserver. And I realized he was right. It wasn't God saying that what you did was right. It was God saying, even though you're foolish, I'm going to help you. But you were foolish. You didn't listen to me. And I didn't. I didn't trust in him. I went and I said, I'm just going to do this on my own. And we do this all the time. when We think that we know better than God. And we don't realize that when we refuse God's warning, we are hurting ourselves financially. We see that even in the book of Haggai chapter, as I referenced earlier, in the book of Haggai, uh, chapter 1, <clears throat> verse 2 through 6, we see this. God is saying to the people, he, uh, the people had been brought back to the, nation, uh, to the land of Israel. They were to reconstruct, to rebuild the temple. And they'd had some opposition, and the, whole, the building project had, had hit in a snag, but yet the people were living very comfortably, uh, <coughs> just enjoying life, having a good time. But God says to them, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? <clears throat> now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And you earns wages, does so to put them into a bag filled with holes. <coughs> in other words, you have done all this stuff and you're never satisfied because God is against you because you haven't honored him first. Don't refuse God's warnings. Do what he wants you to do. And there is forgiveness, and there, but there are consequences for actions. And you might think the consequences are too big to take, but God will be with you through them. When you honor him, he will honor you and he will give you the strength and you will find that he's very supportive and forgiving and he will even make a way for you if you're humble before him. That he does. That's what he does. That's what God delights in doing. And taking our mess making beauty out of it. So not just does he, uh, does it, this action, when we refuse his warnings, hinder our finances, but it also hinders our freedoms. Look at verse 17 of 1 Samuel chapter 8. He will take the tenth of your flocks, and you shall be his slaves. You were slaves, but you're free now. You've been to the promised land, you're free. If you want a king, you're going to be slaves. You're going to be slaves. You know, the Bible says that we are slaves, either slaves to righteousness or slaves to sin, whichever one we obey. Slaves to sin, <coughs> we're going to suffer. When we're slaves to righteousness, we might suffer, but it's, it's a suffering for the glory of God. We've been set free and we bask in the freedom knowing that we are accountable to only him, that we've been bought at a price. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. We delight in him. So we must make sure that we don't reject God's ways or refuse God's warnings. We must also make sure that we don't run after the world. 
See, that's what the Israelites did. They said, we want to be like the nations around us. We want to be like everybody else around us. We don't want to stand out. We don't want to stick out. We want to just be like everybody else. We want to look like everybody else. We want to be like everybody else. We want to, we want to run after the world. See, the world is alluring, but its delights are poisonous to your soul. I don't know if you've ever read uh, Homer's Odyssey, but in the story, it's Odysseus is going back to his homeland after he's been away at war. And he's coming upon the sirens. The sirens are on these rocks. There's these beautiful women that serenade to the sailors that are going by. And they lure them to the boats, I mean, to the shores. And they ended up crashing their boats upon the rocks and they die. And, and uh, Odysseus comes up with this idea that he wants to hear their song. So, but he knows that his men, uh, that no one can handle it. He's heard the stories. So what he does is, is he puts... Uh, like beeswax in their ears so they can't hear the sailors. And then he has himself tied to the mast of the boat. And he says, no matter what I say, don't let me out. Don't let me in. And, and as they're, they're going along and the guys are rowing, and, and Odysseus hears them and he starts commanding them to let him go. But they're holding him back. See, God wants to hold us back because he knows that when we go to the world, it's going to destroy us. And he does so because he loves us. We have to make sure that we recognize that. God's not keeping the world away to punish us. He's doing it because he wants what's best for us. He wants what's best for you. He doesn't want you to, be, to, to struggle in that way. He wants you to find peace, joy in him. The problem that most of us have is we try to find the peace of this world, and we want to we run to the world. Now, how do we run to the world? This is how. When we seek status from the world. A king gave them status, notoriety, a figurehead, a person to lead them. We have a tendency to want that too. We want status from the world. We want the world to look at us and approve of us and validate us. We don't want to, we don't want to seem like we're bigots or uneducated. We want them, the world to validate our intelligence and our beauty and our zeal. We want all those things. But the world is not going to do that. The only time the world will do that is when you compromise your faith. You realize that? When you start valuing what the world does, the world will come alongside and wrap your arm around it and say, hey, that's great. You want to do that? That's fantastic. We'll come alongside you. We'll, you want to embrace this with us? Yeah, look, woohoo! celebrate it. The reality is, is that if we unite with the world, we've made ourselves, we have turned our back on God. So we can't seek status from the world. That's what we do when we run after the world. That's what they did. They sought status from the world. We also run after the world when we are searching for security in the world. Searching for security in the world. See, the, the Israelites wanted him to be their judge, this king, to tell them what was right and wrong, to make them feel safe and secure, to help them determine what was right. See, the world can't give security. It might try, but it's fleeting. You might have the world's acceptance, but you forfeit God's in the process. You cannot have God's security in the world's. Not only that, they, I mean, they wanted a king to show how uh, strong and legit they were. We know that running after the world, when we want to be showing strength to the world, we want to show off, showing strength to the world. I mean, we seek our status in the world, we seek security uh, in, from the world, and we want to show our strength to the world. That's what they wanted to do. They said, we want our kings to lead us into battle, show how strong and mighty and proud we are. See, that's, what, that's it's running after the world. We can't do that as Christians. We have to run back to God and his word and what he has for us. We have to cling to the cross, and we can't <coughs> love the things of this world. The scripture says as much in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 through 17. This is the last verse I'll have you turn to. 
But in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 through 17, we read this. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away. It's passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. See, we have to to do the will of God. The will of God is that we cling to the cross of Christ, that we do what he wants us to do. No matter what comes at us, we're to cling to the cross. I'm reminded of this story, and I want to conclude with this little story that happened in South Carolina during the floods just in the last two weeks. I don't know if you paid attention to this or not, but Clara Gant was on her way to church when she drove her car through some floodwaters and her car stalled. So the waters began to rise and move her car. It's a pretty powerful current. I don't know if you've seen this in the news. Sweeping it off the road and onto a, into a field next to a small church. She tried to call 911, but there was no answer. There were so many people that were in trouble. She eventually got a hold of her family. Her grandson made her way to her and with a harness and rope was able to, pull, to open the door despite the rushing water against it. There was a red cross right where the car stopped on the church property. When she got out, the waters too, were too difficult to navigate. So they clung to the cross for five hours until the rescuers were able to get to them. She said this, Jesus is my sa- Savior, she told the station. The story is not about me. It's about what he did to save me, and he set my feet on higher ground. See what happens when we cling to the cross? That's where safety is. See, when we try to run after the things of this world, when we reject God's ways and we refuse his warnings and we run after the world, that we are jeopardizing ourselves and we have to make sure that we don't. We strap ourselves to the cross. Just like Odysseus strapped himself to the mast of that boat because he knew the lure of it, we have to strap ourselves and cling to the cross of Christ and what he has shown us within his word on how we are to live because then when we do, we will find peace and joy in life. We'll find hope. See, our God is a God of second chances. See, when we feel the, the floodwaters flood of life coming in around us and the currents of the world trying to pull us in, we must cling to the cross of Christ because if we don't, we become a shattered nation, a shattered people who have turned their back on God. Other cultures have not built their foundation on the word, but on the world. We must make sure that we build on the word, that we run back to God. We must remember the gospel story and continually preach it to ourselves that God gave his son to save us from our sins. That if you're here today and maybe you've been pulled out by the currents of the world and you realize that is not fleeting, that you've hewed out cisterns for yourselves, or maybe you've refused God's warnings and you're bearing the marks on your souls because of it, God offers you to come to him and be healed, to have peace with him, to be transformed, to find that joy in him. He says, come to me, all you are burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Take my yoke upon you and you will find rest for your souls. God offers that to each one of us. And, we, and you might have been here today and you say, I know that I've done it wrong. I know that I've turned my back on God. I have been warned my entire life and I keep going my own way. God is saying, now is the time to repent and turn back to me and you will find joy in who I am. And maybe you're a believer here today and you know you've been walking with God, but you know you've also turned and you've let those little foxes creep in little things that have come into your life that are taking apart and tearing apart your spiritual life. You need to keep a quick, you need to keep a short account of sin and make sure that we are repentant. You are repentant that you're turning back to God and experiencing the joy and the peace we can have in him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, Lord, please, uh, we have been a shattered nation. 
Lord, we know that we are a holy nation that is set apart. They've been set apart for good works. As people of God, we are part of this great and wonderful kingdom. And Lord, we know that there are many people that are on the outside looking in that bear the marks on their souls for the choices that they have made and the sins that they have indulged in. But Lord, show them that they too can enter into that kingdom, that they can be born again, just as you have offered through your word, by, by just placing their faith in you, by repenting of their sins, and knowing the, the serious nature of the situation in which they find themselves in, that they have been hopeless in and of themselves. But Lord, we know that you give, them, give us all hope, that you give us second chance. You give us an opportunity for peace in your presence. And Lord, may we turn from those sins and we turn from them now. And we ask you to to bless us, to grant us entrance, to receive us, Lord, by faith in the finished work of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, may we rest in faith, knowing what it is that you have done for us, what you want to do in us, and what you want to continue to do through us for the glory of your name. So Lord, please help us not to be a shattered nation but help to be a holy nation set apart for your, your glory and, and for, that we might increase in joy. We pray your blessing on us now. In Jesus' name, amen.